This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Danny Lavery here, and I have a special announcement for our listeners. Some of you know that I published my latest book in February. It's called Something That May Shock or Discredit You, and it's a little bit about transmasculinity, a little bit about the rapture, and a little bit about Anne of Green Gables. Today, I wanted to let you know that for a limited time only, you can get a really good deal on the audiobook, which is read by me. Go to slate.com slash Danny. That's just slate.com slash Danny. There's also a link in the show notes of this episode. The audiobook will cost you just $12.99. That's $5 off the list price. You will be hard-pressed to find a better deal. After you complete your purchase, you'll be able to listen to the audiobook in your preferred podcast player. That's right, the one that you're using right now. There's no special app to download and no subscription fees. And there's one more thing you should know. This audiobook sale is brought to you by Slate. That means your purchase not only supports me, it also helps support the important journalism you depend on. So it's a win-win. You save money and Slate makes money. If you've ever thought about checking out my book, there's never been a better time than now. This is a limited time promotion. So don't just sit there. Sit there and go to slate.com slash Danny and buy my audiobook today. One more time, that's slate.com slash Danny. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel M. Lavery. With me in the studio this week is Dr. Jennifer M. Buck, an assistant professor of practical theology at Azusa Pacific University. Her books and research explore themes of global Christianity, Quakerism, gender, race, and popular culture. She's also a licensed minister. She helps pastor a church in Pasadena, California, where she lives with her husband and foster son. Uh, She's also my former college roommate. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. It is just an absolute delight to be here with you. And I feel like I wish that we could be eating Easy Mac and sitting on the same couch to really revive the old college experience. Truly. That those were really the days, the good old, good old days. They were certainly days. It cannot be denied that when we <laughs> lived together, we had days and also evenings. Um, how's it going? How you doing? How's the air? Yeah, the air quality is less than ideal here in Southern California, and we're right on the edge of the evacuation zone, but feels unlikely that it would get all the way to our house. So we're kind of keeping an eye on things, staying mostly indoors, but we are safe and we are well, all things considered. Thanks for checking in. I am really glad to hear that, and I hope that um, you're able to bring that same sense of peaceful preparedness to the number of people who have written in to the show today um, because they've got they've got some exciting problems, I think. They've got some interesting problems today. Yeah, it's quite a range of situations that people are navigating even during this pandemic time. Yeah, yeah. Like it, it ranges from like as relatively low intensity as uh, too many quilts all the way up to like I might have to move because my father keeps attacking my cars. And yeah, real, really the gamut of minor to quite serious. <laughs> well, let's get started with something that I think is right in the middle. Um, it's one of my favorites. Would you please read our first question? 
I would be happy to. Subject, competition in a marriage. Dear Prudence, my husband recently made a statement I simply cannot get past. We are a gay couple who have been together for 39 years, married for 12. I recently lost some weight after changing my diet. While lunching with our son at college, he asked how much weight I had lost. When I told him, his response was, what? I can't weigh more than you. I was gobsmacked. He is an educated professional at a major university. This seemed petty and symptomatic of a strong competitive streak he's had with me since high school. Our son seemed pretty surprised too, and he's since apologized after I brought it up again later. But frankly, this has gone on for years. He also has to be number one in everything. I could just roll my eyes and say, oh, that's just how he is, but I'm tired of it. I'm worried about what it'll be like once we retire. I don't want to raise another teenager. I felt this one. Like, I know this couple. Do you know what I mm-hmm. mean? I, um, I felt it. I didn't like it, but I could feel it. I drew it up before my very eyes, and I felt like I was there. Yeah. In my mind, by the way, this happened at a Mimi's, <laughs> and they all had Cobb salads and iced teas that they ordered unsweetened, but that came with sweetener. That's just me setting the scene. Yeah. I think that scene is fair. I noticed it was interesting. There wasn't really a question at the end of it. I was left thinking, like, what exactly are you looking for us to do other than affirm your frustration, which I would absolutely affirm, but there isn't really a pending um, dilemma on the table as much as maybe lengthier conversation needed about what teaming in a marriage might look like. What mutual support Mm -hmm. and mutual health and flourishing for both of you would be like. And also what conversations are appropriate to have in front of your adult son, perhaps as well. But yeah. Yeah. And maybe to that, I I felt like kind of on the on the heels of that is the sort of question of like, if he's been like this since high school and we've known each other for almost 40 years, is there even a point to trying to have a conversation? Both in the sense of like, well, he's not going to change now. And also, is it kind of my fault for letting this go for 39 years? Do you have any thoughts on that unspoken question? Yeah. The interesting thing he lays out is what it will be like once they retire. So I wonder what he thinks will exacerbate this situation once the workplace is no longer in the mix. Is If it's they'll be spending even more time together and maybe they're like recreational hobbies will become even more competitive. And then that might be Uh a good entry point to talk about maybe finding parallel, but not not the same hobbies so that there could be ways of having separate identities and things don't have to feel like a competition, but spaces where they can each be succeeding. Um, I, I wondered how much this conversation has been had already in the relationship, right? So like you said, it's been 49 years, or 39 years, excuse me, but... They don't seem to say, I've brought it up over and over, but they do seem to say, I could just roll my eyes and say that's how he is. So maybe there's a sense that this person has absorbed a lot and hasn't necessarily communicated it. But your your point being, maybe the communication won't change anything. I tend to be a believer that like, hopefully we all would like to be kind of working towards being a little better and maybe didn't realize how much this was hurtful to their partner mm-hmm. by saying that. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah. I I mean, I'm also there with you. I think sometimes too, if somebody feels like they have gotten away with a particular dynamic for 39 years, there's a real sense of like, well, that's just how I am. Or like, you knew I was like that when you married me or like, why are you upset about this all of a sudden? To which I would just say like, you were allowed to suddenly be bothered by something that didn't used to bother you. 
uh, or you're just allowed to kind of realize I've been trying to let this one slide for a really long time and that's no longer working. Or maybe it's just as simple as like, it, it made me realize that we're going to be spending retirement together and uh, I, I'm no longer interested in doing this sort of like, that's Ralph um, routine that I've maybe done for a really long time. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that really speaks to a certain mindset of like, I can't weigh more than you. That That says a lot it wasn't even just like an off the cuff, like kind of ungenerous moment. It was like, I have to, you know, yeah. Oh, Jen, yeah. do you remember when they revamped the Sweet Valley High series <laughs> in the early aughts to be like Sweet Valley senior year? And in the first book, both of the twins had like their secret diaries and they were like, I promise to like always be a half inch taller than <laughs> Jessica or Elizabeth and always two pounds lighter. It, it felt like that to me of just like, He's keeping score in his head of like which of us is like quote the fat husband and it's not him and that's that hurts I think right that was the part that felt like okay maybe that conversation is worth having with a therapist then because this this is then very you know unloving to your partner mm-hmm. and um and not supportive of what seems to be a very strong healthy lifestyle choice that he's been making probably over time, you know, if this has been a change of diet and an effort, it probably hasn't been unnoticed by the spouse because it's probably gone on for a little bit. So that's that's where it's disappointing that there couldn't be a little more like your success is our success kind of a dynamic. And then maybe that's worth bringing another voice into the conversation to help with that. Or at the very least, just like polite neutrality of like, I'm glad this seems to be making you happy. I will not like have any more comments to make on the subject. Honestly, that that character flaw, like you said, even if it has been ongoing and is now coming to the surface, but also has likely been annoying for quite some time, is really worth addressing because in this new season when you might be spending a lot more time with one another, you don't want things to fester and get worse. Yeah, and I think I'll just close with this, which is that I think you know, the the letter writer says that this was intentional weight loss rather than like incidental or something that was the result of an illness. And so I wonder if that coupled with the idea of like retirements on the horizon means that you've been doing some thinking lately about like, what do I want? What do I not want? What are things in my life that I want to change? What are things in my life that I want to keep? And regardless of whether or not or how long or, or to whatever extent you you stay at this weight or change to another weight, I think it seems like part of what you're doing right now is taking stock. And, and the fact that you open with like, I can't get past this is you're, you're saying like, I've had my life in this particular way for a long time. Now our kids off at college, we're thinking about retirement, what's working and what's not. And I think that's the way to approach this conversation. Not like you've been a monster for almost 40 years and you have to like make it up to me. Right. Um, or like everything before was a lie. So much is just like, okay, new time in life, new horizons. What do I want? What do I not? And you're absolutely allowed to say like, I don't want to spend our retirement figuring out who's number one all the time. I, I don't want to think of one another in that way. And I want you to actually do something to change this. And yeah, I think to that end, now would be a great time for therapy. If therapy is not the next move, even just having some of these conversations, pointing it out to him when he's being competitive and be like, go fucking join an over 60 like <laughs> sports league if you need to get out some of your competition, but like, don't bring it to lunch, please. Lunch should not be a battle. Here, here. Lunch should be very pleasant and jovial with our college son. And really, it should be about the college son than about yeah, our competitive we having, dynamic. We should be having a great time at Mamie's. And when they bring that big basket of the muffins uh, over, we should all have the muffin that we want. The muffins are really the reason to go to Mamie's. 
Truly. They do have really good muffins. I do miss them. I don't think that there are Mimi's on the East Coast. Mm, yeah. I don't think there's Mimi's outside of suburban <laughs> California. Possibly not outside of like Christian colleges. Um, I think we've handled this one as much as we need to. Agreed. So the subject of this next line is guilt about looking to the future. Dear Prudence, I feel a combination of guilt and anticipation about the future. My wife has stage four lung cancer. She was diagnosed in 2017. For the past three years, I've been her caregiver when I'm not at work. I've cut my hours so that I leave my office at about 3.30. I check to see what she wants to have for dinner and stop at the market. The rest of the day is spent making dinner, cleaning the kitchen, some minor housework, then watching TV until she goes to bed around nine. This has been our routine for over a year, and on the weekends I do yard work. My wife is mobile, but only just. She has serious balance issues and generally feels not so hot. I should also mention that since my prostatectomy 13 years ago, she's not wanted to have sexual relations with me. I should also say that she is the love of my life, and we've been together for 56 years. I have found myself checking who might be out there willing to connect with an old man, 74, such as myself. I feel alive and want to live in a much more active way, including having a sex life with another woman. I feel like a horrible person, but I am so lonely and feel totally unsure of myself. This one really, like, touched on my old heartstrings. I I felt so much love for this sweet, tender old man who has been caregiving for so long. This has probably been really all-consuming for a few years and and very lonely and very sad season for him as he's anticipating this kind of final chapter yeah. with his wife. Yeah, nothing about this struck me as like, oh man, you really need to check yourself or you are on a bad road. I, I had a letter... Uh, last week from somebody who was in a caregiving situation with their spouse and whose legitimate frustrations had gotten them to a point that I felt like were possibly endangering their disabled spouse. So I was quite hard on them, but I'm kind of glad to have this letter this week to make it clear. Like the problem is not that caregiving is a full-time, very demanding job um, or that somebody who's caring for a, a spouse who's who's got a terminal diagnosis. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought, but basically just wanted to make it clear. Like if that person experiences like stress, distress, a desire to not caregive for a while, to think about something else, like that is in no way bad ever. Yeah, I I wanted to relieve him of a word like guilt. I think I'm assuming it's mm-hmm. a him. Um I can't remember if that gets said or not. Yeah, he called himself an old yeah, man. Yeah, that's right. I think that's yeah. right. Yeah, an old man such as myself. That's right. I want to relieve him of the word guilt because I think it's okay to say, I have so much love and I've had this long, lengthy season with my spouse, but I'm also thinking about a different life and kind of the next chapter of my life in the future. And both can be true. And I would hope that this wife who is the love of his life, who's been with him for 56 years, who has probably received so much care and love from him and feels her own maybe share of guilt about that, that she would only mm-hmm. want good for, good things for him in the next chapter of his life, would want companionship for him, would want him to be able to feel alive and live in a more active way, like he said. And that's me wanting to be charitable towards her, but I could only hope that she would want that next thing for him. So then it right. maybe doesn't have to be guilt. It can be both. You want to finish this chapter well, but you also are thinking about what your next chapter will look like. And that's okay. Because some of that is is the coping that we do in seasons of 
you know, deep, deep pain and sadness. Right. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the first thing you should do is say to your wife, I've been occasionally checking to see who might be wanting to date someone in their mid-70s. Um, partly because that's just, even if in theory or or as an idea, she wants you to have a happy life after she dies, she might not feel up to talking about like, and what dating sites would you like to use? Um, so I don't think that you need to start with that. But I, I think a couple of things. One is that I think you maybe need one day a week where you do not just come home early from work and cook and tidy up the house and watch TV with her. And that doesn't mean like one day a week you just blow her off and and do nothing because it seems like this schedule has really been um, something you've both been kind of clinging to. So, but but like maybe one afternoon a week where you either tell a friend you you two need help with dinner or you order takeout if that's something that you can afford. Um, and again, assuming that that's something that she's able to eat, I imagine somebody with stage four lung cancer is not going to be able to like eat a Domino's pizza that's full of sodium necessarily, but maybe she can, I don't know. Um, but, but think about what would it look like if one day a week right now, so that you're not just thinking I'll only experience freedom and peace once my wife is gone. And now that she's alive, my only job is to go to work and then take care of her. Um, so that you have like a couple of hours in the afternoon to go see a movie Movie theaters are closed. I'm sorry that I said that. I was like trying to imagine life before. Um, even just like reading a book in your car, like something that's not fixing up the house or making dinner. Absolutely. I had the same thought about respite care in some form, whether your insurance might provide someone that could occasionally serve as some help, or if you have someone in your family or in a friendship that would feel like the kind of person you trust that you could ask for that support. Because the the list of what his routine has been like, not only is it heartbreaking, but also the fact that he felt like listing it made, almost made it seem like, see, I have earned this break. And it's like, absolutely, we agree with you. You don't have to give a reason for it. We just recognize that this has been a really hard chapter that isn't over yet. So you do need something to help sustain you till whenever that chapter comes to an end. Right. And I understand that if she has serious balance issues and is generally not feeling well, you might not feel like I can pick a day a week where I'm just gone all day. Again, I get that. And if financially it's not possible to get um, in-home care just yet um, to plan ahead for like, you're going to leave her there for two hours with like some grapes and charcuterie, something that she can eat off of a tray, something that doesn't involve like standing up and cutting a lot of things. Um, but But just something that gives you time to yourself before she is dead. You need that. And I, I realize that sounds kind of brutal, but like you do need that. Oh, it absolutely does. Not only time to himself, but he says he's so lonely. And there can be yeah. ways that you develop companionship and friendships and community even in this season as well too. It isn't always necessarily that you've immediately start dating somebody else or there's right. an overlap or anything like that. But there can be ways that you find, you know, friendship, companionship even in this season as well. And it might be in some yeah. non-traditional ways. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe to also talk about, like, given how intensive your at-home caregiving routine is right now, any progression in her illness might mean that she could pretty quickly move to a place where you could not do those things for her. So I, I think it's it's kind of like wanting to get pain medication and, like, as they say, like, stay ahead of the pain when you're recovering from surgery, um, to, to stay ahead of her diagnosis such that you're not waiting for like one day when she falls and you have to move her either to the ER or to hospice care immediately to think about, you know, 
let's get somebody in maybe a few weeks or months before we think we have to have them so that we never have to make a decision because we just suffered an accident or something awful just happened. And again, I say that like, oh, you just snap your fingers and an incredibly qualified hospice nurse starts coming around three afternoons a week and then just magically knows when to up it to seven days a week. And then you just have this flawless transition into end of life care. Um, but I do think that now is, and again, it's not just like you come home and you say, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, pick a hospice, you're going. Um, but to think about how do we, how do we go from seven days a week I do this to six days a week I do this to are there friends who have offered maybe to make dinner that we didn't want to take them up on it because we were, you know, didn't want to impose and now it's maybe time, you know? Yeah, I think all of that's a good word. Starting some of that planning might help alleviate some of the guilt that he's feeling and help, like he says, he doesn't feel totally sure of himself and that might start to help him feel like, oh, now I'm developing a little bit of a sense of what, the future might look like. So there can be a little bit of certainty under my feet, even in this very uncertain time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you find yourself periodically just like double checking, are there still dating sites for people in their seventies? Uh, so that when my wife is gone, I might hop on one of those. I, I just don't think you need to beat yourself up over that one. That's not a sign that you want her to die. It's, it's a pretty natural reaction. All right, let's move on to something on a, on a totally different scale. I'm very excited that you get to read this one. Oh, yes. Subject, quilted out. Dear Prudence, my partner and I just moved into our first home together. It is much larger than our tiny studio apartment with more available areas to decorate. My partner's mother is obsessed with quilting, and my partner wants this to feature prominently in our home decor. I don't just mean one bed quilt. I mean frame quilts on the walls, quilts on the couches, quilted coasters, the whole nine yards. My house looks like a quilt threw up on it. It feels like a cross between a hoarder's home and a nursing home. I'm much more minimalist, and I hate having clashing colors everywhere. Plus, the quilts sometimes have a musty smell. I feel like a jerk for pushing back on displaying some of my partner's mother's lovingly handmade art, but I hate walking into my own home. Generally, we communicate well, but they just have a block about this for some reason. They are also extremely close with their mother in a way I'm not with mine, so perhaps that's playing into it. What can I do to respect my partner and their mother while not living in a quilted horror show? Well, <laughs> um, I want to look on the bright side here and say, like, it's fine if your partner has a block on this subject. Like... Who cares? Just fight about it. Like, what do I do to respect my partner and their mother? You already are doing that. Don't worry about that. Unless unless you are like ripping down the quilts and saying like, your mother is a musty bitch with no talent. Um, <laughs> you're doing great. Yeah. I wondered why there couldn't be some middle ground here where there's like a, a part of the house that that partner can have more of the quilts in that's kind of their office or their corner or their room for some purposes where they could still display them, but you could feel like the shared space, you also get to have some say in the decor in because that feels completely reasonable. Yeah. The, I think the key here is I feel like a jerk for pushing back on displaying my partner's mother's lovingly handmade art. So for whatever reason, the dynamic in your home right now is unlimited quilts. <laughs> 
And anyone who says anything other than more quilts like Giles Corey getting crushed to death during the Salem witch trials, shouting out more weight, uh, doesn't love my mom. And that is outrageous. Like that is a wildly unreasonable stance. So like, again, as long as you are not calling your partner or her mother a bitch with no taste and a terrible sense of smell who doesn't realize that her home smells like death. Don't say those things and you will be in the clear. And if you just say to your partner, I love you. This has been driving me insane. We have too many damn quilts in our house. I hate it. It's driving me nuts. One quilt is fine. 50 quilts is too many. We need to figure out the number of quilts we're going to display in our home. I need to tell you right now that number is going to be lower than you wish it was. Like that just has to be the fight. Anything other than like all quilts all the time, your partner's going to be like, oh no, but mom just made this amazing new quilt. You won't believe it. It's made out of fucking quilted material, like all of the other quilts. It was going to change the game. I I just, I can't get over that like, it's, it's really fine to say you don't want them on display. That's not unloving. That's not disrespectful. Like, it's absolutely okay to say this is how I'd like my home to look. And of course, there might be some, what about this or what about that with your partner? But you don't have to just say either I don't love you both or it's all quilts everywhere. Right. And it's just like your partner can still love their mom and be super close and be like, hey, mom, eight is enough. You know, like none of this is weird or unreasonable or like, oh, yeah, the, you know, they are really going to have to fight about it. And like if the mom does freak out, that's a fight they need to have. Like if the alternative is you being like, well, everything in our home is quilted, including like our condoms, but, you know, my partner loves her mom. So what are you going to do? Like you fight about it. You fight about it now. And you say it's too many quilts. Pick three. Yeah. And you're generous to try to say maybe it's because I'm not close to my mom, but I don't think that has anything to do with this situation whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, look, I used to be close to my mom and now I'll never talk to her again until she dies. So that's obviously a factor. Uh, But like, (laughs) even when I thought we were really close, I would have felt pretty comfortable saying no on more than two quilts. Um, My mother also makes quilts as a hobby, but it feels completely appropriate for us to have one on display, some folded in like a kind of chest that are unseen and still tell her that we love her and we love her quilts, but we don't plan on putting more out in our house. You can draw some very healthy boundaries around still loving the quilt-making mother-in-law or partner of your mother, excuse me, and, um, you know, also have your home look the way you want it to. This is a fight worth having. If they have a block, that's on them, and you might as well dig to the bottom of it. Maybe you can get them to really say what's under the quilt obsession. Maybe you can get there. I just keep picturing that scene in Fantasia where the magician's apprentice keeps making more and more sentient brooms, but with quilts. And it's just like, yeah, just because someone loves you and they like quilting does not mean that your entire life has to be given over to that project. And um, if it does, you need to do some healthy uh, reconsideration of what your idea of love is and gifts are. Um, And honestly, if it were me and that fight weren't going well, I'd start throwing away the quilts because I'm a real shit stirrer sometimes and I like to fight. Um, and I'm also nervous about conflict. So sometimes I like to do things that I know will mean a fight has to happen so that I can't chicken out, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that seems like some real me shit where I would just be like, 
oh, we almost talked about it yesterday. You know what I'm going to do? Burn nine of the quilts. Then they'll be super pissed off and there's no turning back. <laughs> so you can always try that. I mean, different strokes for different folks, but if that works for you. <laughs> that's that's not me at my best, uh, to be clear. That is, um, it's just a thing you can do. Uh, but we should move on. Yes. This next one, much more serious. Uh, and it's my turn to read it. The subject is parental misbehavior. And yes, it is. Dear Prudence, my nephew recently demolished his adult daughter's spare car that was parked on his property. He did this because she'd been unable to accept an invitation to someone else's birthday party that he had extended to her. She had good reason to decline the invitation as COVID-19 is still a real concern. After that, she filed a restraining order. My nephew was subsequently arrested for possessing multiple unregistered weapons and violating his restraining order. Now my grandniece feels guilty that her father is facing serious time for weapons charges that ensued over the service of a restraining order. My advice is that she isn't responsible for that, but she should move out of the area as he's clearly unstable and who knows what will happen between now and the trial. What's your advice? That's rough. Yeah, I I immediately went to the safety of the grandniece. I think that's really important yeah. and that's paramount. Um I I agree with the letter writer that he does seem pretty unstable and he seems pretty volatile and we don't quite know what kind of actions he's going to possibly take with um, demolishing a vehicle already on the table. And now things have escalated in terms of possibly his anger at her because of the restraining order. So I do think she needs to do what she feels is appropriate to get herself into a position of safety. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. And I think to whatever, I know that the letter writer can't force her to do that. Um, but I do agree that the letter writer should really encourage her and just say like, given that he has already done some pretty intense stuff and we know he's pretty dysregulated and not interested in complying with the restraining order. Um, I think, and, it's, and it sounds like he's also out on bond um, until the trial. So yeah, I think both saying, I think that you should, if nothing else, stay with friends, stay somewhere where, you know, he doesn't know the address, um, start taking additional precautions. Like whenever you have to go run an errand by yourself or do something alone, text a friend where you're going and what time you think you're going to be back. Always make sure that somebody you trust knows where you are, which might feel a little over the top, but, uh, could end up being pretty critical. Um, not doing things alone if you can avoid it. Um, maybe the letter writer can also ensure that if there's other relatives who they're worried might be a weak link, like if the dad reaches out and says, like, do you know where she is? And the letter writer suspects that they might tell him. Either, you know, get them in order, get them in line, um, or make sure they don't know where she's at. But yeah, I mean, you can't undo the restraining order. Um, that did not seem like a situation where somebody went to the police like, precipitously or too soon or frivolously. And I, I, I just think you can't unring that bell anyway. So there's just, there's, there's no point in, in, in wishing that you had done it differently. It's over. And, um, you know, it feels like the lesser of two evils here. If your options were either file a restraining order or don't, um, I think my advice probably would have been to file a restraining order too. You know, letter writer, you clearly have a deep sense of care for your grandniece and her well-being. And I I would encourage you to continue with that. Whatever relationship you have that you can 
not only just help her to not feel guilty about the situation, and at least you can maybe reassure that out of your relationship, but absolutely any ways that you are able to um, continue to look out for her safety and well-being, just like some of the advice that Danny was giving, I think that's uh, really what needs to be important as trials are getting delayed in COVID and this might be a situation that goes on longer than even anticipated. I'm I'm so very sorry that all of this uh, unraveling is happening in your family during this time. That's got to be really heavy on you as the great aunt. But um, whatever ways that you can care for her, I would encourage you to do that. And whatever ways you can help her to be safe, I would encourage that as well and kind of keep her protected because it seems like your nephew's, um, yeah, a bit volatile, a bit unstable in this season of his life for whatever reasons. Yeah, I mean, anybody who's willing to smash up your car because you said, I can't go to somebody else's birthday party is somebody who it is hard to anticipate what may or may not set them off. Um, And so not that I want to make it the letter writer's concern to make sure that he's getting mental health treatment, but if if you think he is likely to listen to you or if there's another relative who you think he might listen to, anything that you can do that would encourage him to, um, you know, take his lawyer's advice. I'm sure his lawyer is recommending to him that he not try to contact his daughter um, or to attempt to threaten anyone else. Um, If he can start seeing a therapist, if he can go to a doctor and a psychiatrist to see if there's some sort of diagnosis that's that's gone unnoticed, um, anything that you can do in that way, yeah. Yeah, any movements towards treatment would only benefit him for the possible upcoming trial. So anyways, um, you can encourage that letter writer based out of your relationship. He may not take it, but at least that's you giving him the best advice possible, which is moving towards health, not only for himself, but for the best future outcome for his, uh, you know, upcoming legal proceedings. But then your your primary concern being for your grandniece. And so whatever, whatever you can do to protect her, I would encourage that. Especially I kept continuing to think we don't know her age. And so that was another thing I was concerned about as well. Right. Like the letter said daughter, adult daughter, but it was just like, that could be 18, you know, like she might not necessarily be very financially, um, you know, spare car could mean anything from like, it's a, it's a relative's hand me down, like used car to like, she is in her thirties and has multiple vehicles. Cause she's quite well off. In which case, like she'll have more resources to get away, which is a good thing. But yeah, I agree. If, if, if she's younger, if, if this was a spare car because she needed it to get to work because her other one wasn't reliable. Uh, If there's anything that you can do towards making this less financially disastrous, that would be great. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. This next one is just like a classic, classic, I think. It has like a slightly pandemic inflected update, but it felt just very much like this is why advice columns were invented, which was like the problem of heterosexuality and why does my boyfriend not want to marry me? Yeah, it, I felt like I was watching an indie film with this one. Like a little, yeah, has a little bit of a romance, but it's going to have to have a little bit of sadness to it as well. Yeah, okay. Subject, in sickness and in health. Dear Prudence, I'm a woman and have been with my partner for about two years. We are both 29. We are well-suited and generally very happy. We want the same things for our life together, I thought. We make a great team and are already living in a house that we bought together with our two dogs. However, there is one problem. My partner is currently working, but his job doesn't provide enough health insurance, and we can't afford private insurance. I get great insurance through my job. He's looking for another job, 
but he has no immediate prospects. I'm concerned about him not having insurance in general, but especially during a global health crisis. The best solution would be universal health care, but that isn't an option right now. I proposed that we get married at town hall, not a big ceremony, so I could add him to my insurance policy. He dismissed me out of hand. I tried to get him to tell me why, and he couldn't give me an answer other than, I don't know, I just don't want to. Every time I've tried to bring it up since, maybe three times total over the past couple months, that's all he will say on the matter. I'm not trying to trick him into marrying me. I'm ambivalent on the point of marriage myself and offered it as a practical solution to a pressing problem that affects us both. His refusal to even think about it hurts me. It feels like he's saying I'd rather risk getting coronavirus with no insurance and possibly die or at least go into significant debt than marry you. I'm not sure if that's a reasonable feeling, but it's the one I've got. I'd be devastated if he got sick and had no safety net other than our somewhat meager savings. Obviously, I don't want him to marry me if he doesn't want to, and the idea of being the stereotypical girlfriend nagging her reluctant boyfriend for a ring is revolting to me. But the lack of explanation has me filling in answers for myself. What should I do? Should I try again to get him to tell me why he doesn't want to marry me? Should I drop it forever? Should I be okay with a flat no with no reason behind it? I honestly think that I'd be okay with whatever answer, even if it meant we didn't want the same things for our lives after all. The not knowing why is the worst part. My my first thought here was like, you do not have to pretend not to care about this. Like, I get that what you're saying is you're like, I'm I'm aware that marriage isn't uh, an ideal institution. I'm aware that there are real downsides to it. I'm not living for marriage, but like you're you're not ambivalent at all. Maybe you're ambivalent about marriage in theory, but in this situation with your current partner and his current need for health insurance and your current desire to help solve his problem, you are in fact so far from ambivalent here. You want to marry him. I had the exact same thought. You don't bring something up three times just for practical reasons. You bring it up because you want this. And maybe some of why you want it is altruistic. But yeah, you don't need to feel bad about that. Yeah, like it's not shameful. It's not something you have to downplay. And I say all that because you are working, I think, very hard to downplay it. Because some part of you thinks if I act relaxed enough about it, he will see what a good idea it is. And then I'm not actually trying to trap him. Which again, I, I understand where you're coming from in that. But it's not working and it's not necessary. So it's like you are trying to act incredibly nonchalant about something that you in fact feel incredibly urgent about. It's not working, obviously. Um, And so the frustration here, I think on your end comes from pretending to care less than you do. Right. And to that point, then he is trying to communicate to you he is not interested in doing this. And now it is up to you how you would like to respond to that information. You cannot make him feel differently than he does. You have presented your case. You have brought it up multiple times. Maybe it's worth you bringing it up with the actual level of passion you feel for it. And then he realizes, oh, I didn't realize you felt so strongly about it. That might change his mind. But it seems like all evidence points to the fact that his mind is not going to be changed on this issue. And so now what would you like to do with that as a result? Yeah. And like... I I feel sympathetic to this too, because there's the real frustration of like, listen, man, the jig is up. We live together. We have dogs together. Like if part of you was thinking, uh, you know, oh, wow, marriage, that sounds like a big deal. It's like, well, too fucking late, man. If we split up, we're going to have to go to 
maybe court over some dogs or at the very least have some awful conversations. Um, like if, if your hope was to avoid commitment and keep your options open, that ship has sailed. If we break up, it will be a whole thing. We are going to have to divide assets. And, you know, I, I also solved this own problem in my life by getting a sex change. But I also really relate to, I think, being in a, you know, a relationship with a man as a woman where it's just like, sometimes I want to fucking save the day. I want to be ardent and I want to be competent and suave. And I want to like pick you up off of a pirate ship and dip you and kiss you and have my hair blowing in the wind. And maybe I have a sword and like leather trousers and like also I have a beard and my name is Fernando. But that's not the point. Like just because I ended up being a transsexual doesn't mean you are. And I think part of that frustration is that sense of like, I would like to be ardent and save the day and impressive and do something fucking cool. And that displays how much I care for you. And I want your response to that to be like, Oh, that's hot. That's amazing. Yes. Give me, whisk me up in your strong arms. Let's run away. You know, like I don't think that's an exclusively like transmasculine feeling. I think lots of people can feel that way and it can feel like, sad and demoralizing if it feels like your partner doesn't want that from you. Do you think I was reading too much into that? Does that make sense? No, I think that totally makes sense. And that's definitely giving this very charitable view to her of like, I really do want to do something for you. And I get that. I also think it's fair to say, okay, you don't want to get married. I hear you, but I need you to have health insurance. And that's a fine also line in the sand to draw with your partner. I, like you said, you're, you're obviously very invested. You have built a life together. You've built a home together. Their health is the health of your uh, unit, right? So I think it's absolutely fine to say, if marriage is not the way and you do not want to receive my health insurance that I, I want to gift to you, then right. we need to figure out another way for you to get insurance because that, it feels very important to me that you have that uh, safety net under you should anything happen. I think the pandemic has like heightened that for a lot of folks, no doubt, but it's a good practice just because you're young and 29 does not mean that there would not be other reasons why health insurance would be really important for your partner, right. you know? So I think that's a totally reasonable conversation to have separating the marriage one aside from it, you know, and then just saying, okay, how do we figure this out? Do we need to start putting some of our meager savings into, you know, a COBRA plan or some kind of basic health insurance plan for you? Do we need God, to buy COBRA into- is so fucking expensive. Right. The, I know, Oof. I know. The, you're absolutely right when you say the sentence of, you know, the best solution would be universal health care, but that's not an option. So right, right, right. if he's not interested in partnering with you to receive your health insurance in a legal way, then you're going to need to get creative and figure out some other ways that you can get him health insurance if that feels like really important to you. Because I think that's a very reasonable ask of your partner that they super be responsible with their health as much as they're able. Yeah. And I also, you know, in that I also relate to him because like, I think uh, the first time I got laid off, I did Cobra for like a year and I was like, this is the most expensive thing in the world. And so after that, I was just like, my plan is just, I'm not going to think about it and I hope I don't get sick. And so for like many, many years, like I didn't, I didn't have health insurance until like two years ago. And I would like once or twice buy it through Obamacare because my tax person would freak out and then I'd forget to pay after a month and I'd be like, I can't afford to pay this month. And then it would lapse. And this is not, I give advice. All right. I, um, I give advice <laughs> in part because I've made mistakes in my life. And I certainly... Yeah if I had to speculate about his state of mind, it would be something like mine at various points in my 20s, which would be like, yeah, I should really get a job. I will look into that later. 
and uh, I'm just not going to get sick until I get my next health insurance and that's going to work out great. So it's not a great strategy and it's especially not a great strategy when you are like a homeowning live-in partner who's responsible for dogs. Um, But yeah. And then I think just beyond that, whatever's going on, I don't think that you can say like, unless you can give me a good reason, we should do it. But I do think it's fair to say, listen, here's what I want. I'm not ashamed of it and I'm not embarrassed by it. Like I'm not playing it cool. I live with you. We bought dogs together. I like you. Um, cats out of that bag. Um, I want to know what you are thinking. And if the answer is just, you kind of don't think about it, that would be painful, but I would like to know. Um, so just, you know, think a little bit. Last time we talked, you said, I don't know. I just don't want to. Okay. Give it some thought today. Think about it. I've been thinking about it a lot. I'm not asking that you feel the same way about this, but I am asking that you expend some emotional energy in my direction because I'm expending a lot in your direction. And that, again, is not embarrassing. It's not shameful. I shouldn't feel like a dweeb for thinking about you, the man I live with and want to sweep up off of a pirate ship. And and so just really say, like, I would like you to meet me here where I am, thinking about you and your well-being a lot. Dedicate some of your emotional resources in the direction of our relationship. And then even if what you have to say to me is, I like living together and I like our dogs, but the idea of marriage freaks me out because it makes me think that getting broken up is going to be a big hassle. And so for that reason, I just don't feel like it. At least then have the honesty to say something to me that you will know will hurt my feelings and we can deal with it together. But don't do the whole like, gee, I don't know. I never thought about it. It's kind of dumb that you're giving it all this thought. Like, I'm not stupid for thinking about you. We're in a relationship. I sound like Carrie from Sex and the City at this point. <laughs> just like yelling at Big in the street. Like, I'm not an yeah. idiot for thinking about you, Big. Exactly. I was going to say, there's a way to have a conversation and not be a nag. You don't want to be the stereotypical nag. Then don't be that, you know? And that doesn't yeah. mean your only other option is don't have the conversation. You can have a very healthy conversation where you you give them the space to think about it and you talk about it like, the 29-year-old reasonable adults that you are. But yeah, it isn't unreasonable to say I'm considering your health in like the future of our family unit here. And that's that's totally appropriate. And there's a way to do that without being a nag. But I think going back to the very, very original point, don't pretend like you don't care that much. You, you care very deeply. And you care very deeply about marriage and you care very deeply about their health. And that's worth like talking about both those fronts, maybe together, maybe separate. Yeah. And like, to me, the problem of nagging is, is of strategy and not of like, you're dumb to care. Like part of what I think creates conditions for some nagging, not all nagging, but nagging of this variety is the sense of like, do you think about me? We are in a relationship and sometimes it feels like you are in a competition to care less. Um, and I don't understand where the value is in that. Like, and, and so to that, I would say, you know, if you don't want to be in a relationship with somebody who nags, Think about that person's inner emotional experience and tell them how you're feeling once in a while. And then if they nag beyond that, then they're probably just being a jerk. I will let this one go because at this point, I think I'm talking to some of my boyfriends from my 20s. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, it was. A, I felt myself in this one a little bit in a way that was not pleasant. Yeah, yeah. me too. But mm-hmm. it all worked out. We're doing great. You're a pastor. I have a beard. We've we got all the things moved that we on needed. to healthy relationships <laughs> now. Yes, yeah. yes. Thank goodness. Okay. <sighs> And that's it. I think we did it. We did How do it. you feel? 
I feel good. I feel like we, you know, we got to tackle some that were quite uh, significant all the way to, you know, quilts and lunches at Mimi's. So we really ran the gamut. Yeah, I feel I feel hearty and robust and like everyone just needs to buck up and throw some quilts away and (laughs) have some tough conversations. Make somebody else cry. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Jen, it was a delight. You were a great roommate in college and you're a great advice giver now. Oh, thank you so much. This was the best part of my day, nay, probably of my week. So thank you so much for having me. It, yeah. it was lovely to give advice to total strangers. I would I would happily do it anytime. Right? It's weirdly fun. It's very fun. It's, it's weirdly terrific. And I've just been in such a great zone lately. Yeah, where I'm just like, you can just stop talking to your whole family and it's fine. So you can <laughs> definitely tell your partner that you don't want any more quilts either. Right. Yeah. You are in a unique spot with all this, but I love it. I'm here for it. (laughs) Jen, as always, a delight. Thank you for uh, tolerating my gallows humor and uh, have a fabulous rest of your day. Oh, you as well. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds. A minute tops. Thanks for listening. Here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Honestly, based on what I've seen here, to me, it just seems like either give your mother a financial gift or don't. But trying to pay off her mortgage in order to get her to amend her will in your favor is clearly not working. And this kind of like hope of like, maybe I can just keep fighting with my mom until she gives in. is just like, like, this is how you get knives out. And that's that that line about like my mother pretended to have a breakdown saying she didn't want to play favorites with her kids, but felt so much pressure. Like, I don't know that she was pretending. That sounds like a genuinely stressful situation. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.